next guest is Kylie Unel, a doctoral fellow at NYU studying both Jewish philosophy and African-American dialectics, exploring the contours of ethics, morality, and spirituality from Spinoza to Booker T. Washington. She's also a podcaster, writer, and public speaker. And we met a few years ago at the Tikva Fund, an intellectual think tank where we studied Jewish philosophy, religion, and family life. In the podcast you're about to hear, we discuss identity, patriarchy, the difference between leading with the head and leading with the heart, and much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Kylie because it was free-flowing and easygoing, while still diving deep into really existential topics like teleology and the conundrum that comes with knowing that even though human beings are purpose-driven, the universe is not. Trippy, I know. Have a listen, and as always, be sure to like, retweet, and share with your family and friends. Here's the next episode of The Heart Speaks with Kylie. Um, so cool, Kylie. You're my friend. That's how I know I'm you. your friend. <laughs> yeah. We're friends. Um, I was like, what should I talk to Kylie about? Now, I know that you've created these two organizations. I was reading about this last night to prepare for this conversation. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You probably know more about me than I know about myself, honestly. That's definitely not true. When I say read, (laughs) I mean, I mean, I skimmed like a few articles last night, um, (laughs) to be in all honesty. So wait, okay. So you've created these two organizations called Roots and models of faith are rooted is it rooted Rooted. yeah rooted and models of faith yeah models of faith was a part of rooted rooted i created like i don't know three two three years ago and it's kind of been dormant a little bit like it's coming back because well i say you know me better than i know myself but really the last couple years have been me learning about myself like actually knowing myself better yeah (laughs) so i've like i've i feel like i've cleared everything to the side and just trying to figure out like what is I like I love the name of the podcast, but like what's in my actual heart and can yeah. I feel what's there? Cause I haven't I haven't been feeling. It turns out I go through the world kind of numb. And now I'm learning. I think that's talk. true for most of us, by the way. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to cr- to call it the heart speaks is because I grew up in a very like hyper intellectual cerebral mm-hmm. environment. And I think that the world or the culture that we live in values that. And, and it devalues like dropping into the body and figuring out what your feelings and emotions are and like being in relationship with that. So, and I struggle with that. Uh, And I have that, I experience that numbness as well from time to time. So I want to like work on that, you know? Yeah. It's like all a response to things. And, and I also like, I come from, I don't think it's, I mean, it's like partially the world, but it's also just, I have a really, I have a strong mind. Like I just have a strong, like I I have a strong mind. Affirmation. (laughs) That's a good, that's a nice, healthy way. That's a healthier way to describe it. Yes. It's a strong mind. And it like, it was strong enough to get me sick when I didn't want to do something in school. Like I just have a powerful mind. Yeah. And, and the mind was like the only legitimate thing. And we come from this enlightenment. Like we are the children or I don't even know, great, great, great grandchildren of enlightenment, <laughs> of like an enlightenment tradition. Yeah. And that in some ways, it's not totally intellectually honest to say that it devalues the heart, but the way that we've inherited it is such that like the mind is the only legitimate thing that you can talk about. Yeah. And the heart isn't, 
it's not real and you can like kind of surface level talk about things. Also, it's really hard. Like it's, I, this is the hardest work I've ever done. Like learning yeah. how to feel. I was listening to this podcast between these two Jungian like masters. That's how they were. That's how they were. That's how. No, were, no, no. You were on the Jung train and I wasn't there yet. And I'm yeah. so on that train now. Are I'm, you really? Oh my God. Oh my I can't God. wait to hear about it. This is going to be fantastic. Okay, so Marion Woodman and Robert Johnson. Literally, um, yeah, the Queen and King. <laughs> yes. I love they're that you than, know this. I love that you're more than this. masters. Yeah, like so I've watched I've listened to like eight hours of them talking. Um wow. and I'm gonna re-listen to it, but what why did I bring this up? One of the things they talk about the mind and the heart. Oh, just like the mind isn't actually disconnected from the heart. We just we just have inherited, as you've said, a tradition that creates a false dichotomy between the two. And in the conversation between Marion Woodman and, and Robert Johnson, they like talk about how to get back into feelings. And they also talk about how other civilizations have like a better go at it. Like they talk a lot about India and how mm-hmm. India... India suffers from like other problems that we've sort of solved for in the West. But when it comes to like, and I'm being really reductive here, but like when it comes to like feelings and, and, and having a vocabulary for the body and sensing into it, India is far more advanced. And I I think a lot of Eastern uh, places tend to be far more advanced than our like Western orientation. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. And I think there's something, Oh, I think there's something uncomfortable. I don't know. I think me being a a Westerner and growing up a Westerner, just in my mentality and the culture, I think what I got from the culture was that like the West is right about everything and anything that's different is wrong. (laughs) And not only wrong, it's like, it's like hippie. Like it's like, like when you're in your twenties and you need to go searching for yourself, then you go to India and you look to the wisdom and whatever, but like, that's your childhood. You don't actually, <laughs> that doesn't actually serve you. Yeah. And it's such a, we really look down on difference, some things that are different, or we just don't know how to, we don't know how to meet difference at all. <laughs> yeah. I would say, I would say we don't know how to meet mystery. I mean, this is a very spiritual, mm, this is a very like, this stuff tells into spirituality and like mysticism and, you know, the root word of which is mystery. Uh, and it's like, we don't know how to, in our enlightenment obsession, and I'm so into this theory, um, in our enlightenment obsession with like facts and what is known and scientific knowledge we've lost a capacity to be in relationship with the mystery at the heart of being itself yeah for sure it's it's really painful i've i've been studying spinoza for a mm. while and i and i tell I, us about I, spinoza I, spinoza <laughs> baruch spinoza became benedict Spinoza, when he was exiled, essentially excommunicated from the Jewish community community in Amsterdam. He's like, mm. it's a debate whether he's the first modern Jewish philosopher. Is he a Jewish philosopher? Is he just a philosopher? He wasn't in the Jewish community. So what is, his writings aren't Jewish per se. Yeah. Not per se. They're not Jewish. Um, but he wrote this masterwork called The Ethics, which mm. didn't actually get published because it was too... It was too out there for the world. He was okay. he was deemed an atheist for this text because 
he was trying to, he wasn't trying. He had a logical proof for the existence of God, but he says these words like God or nature, because God is God. Everything in the world, everything in the universe is an expression of God, but God doesn't choose to exist. God exists necessarily. And, um, and there's no sense of God's will or anything Mm. moving towards God's end. That doesn't exist. Like God. There's no like teleology. Basically. There's no teleology. There's yeah. no teleology at all. There's yeah. no telos. There's nothing. We're not moving towards anything. Yeah. God exists necessarily. And because God exists, everything in the world exists. There's no such thing as good or evil. He has a, I think you'd love parts of his philosophy because yeah. he says that everything in the universe is, um, seeks to, seeks to increase its power and not mm. in the postmodern sense of like having power over people, but yeah. just having like, it's your desire to live. And so we, we shy away from things, not only shy away, we, we literally avoid things that, that decrease our power, which is Mm. sadness. Mm. He calls that like that affect sadness, the things that we sense decrease our power. Mm. And then joy is what increases our sense of power. And then there's all these feelings, all these affects within that. So hate is the feeling the, the affect of sadness combined with the image of something that whatever, like there's mm. all, everything has a little like something to it. Yeah. Um, and what's, but what's really uncomfortable about him for me is that he's, his idea is that everything is in reason. It's the principle of sufficient reason. You can go back all the way. It's really hard for humans to do, but everything yeah. has a cause yeah. basically. Um, and, and he, Wait, why is that hard though? Why is that hard to take? That's hard. It's hard because of that mystery part. Mm. Like I, it's like kind of caught in the middle of there's an answer for everything and we don't know it. Like it's it's very hard for humans, but, but you can like reason can get you there and the answers are all there versus maybe there are some things that we don't know. (laughs) And like, maybe it's kind of crazy to have a logical proof for God and not knowing like it's, it's beyond comprehension. Um, that's a definite paradox for me to hold on to, which I actually learned from Robert Johnson is religion. Ah, Ah, it comes back (laughs) because religion is re and legare. And it's like the binding back together of religious. Yeah. Religion. Exactly. It's like the, is, it, is that religio and Ligari? What a, you know better than I do. I, I, only, Lig- know, I, remember I only know religio. I only know that term, but it, so religio also, and Ligari. Yeah. yeah. And, and religion is the point of like everything in the world is paradoxes. It's like, yeah, I am both nothing and like the most powerful person in the world yeah. and hold those together or whatever they are. And, and religion binds them and it embraces the curiosity and the mystery, but it's like, so un- it's really uncomfortable. I don't know. Yeah. For me. It's also uncomfortable for me. I'm like learning a lot of these things for the first time. Now I am studying a lot of Eastern traditions. Like I'm studying Tantra right now. I'm studying, you know, always studying Carl Jung. So it's like the marrying of the West and the East. I grew up in a very like teleological home. You know, like there is an end point and it's headed this way as a Christian return of Jesus. We're trying to get there, you know, and and to shift from, I mean, first of all, that mindset creates so many different like implications because one of the implications that it causes within me is like judgment all the time, right? I'm judging everything constantly and I'm, and I'm actively doing work on myself to get out of that framework um, and to learn how to be with with what is like awareness without judgment, um, 
but it's hard to shift. I find it very difficult to shift from a teleological, you know, this is the fixed point to which we are headed to a non-teleological. And Tantra has this belief also, like there's really no end. Like it's just, it exists for its own sake. You know, it's one of the, it's one of the, (laughs) (laughs) and in our culture, the West, which is very goal oriented, right. Which is very outcome oriented. It's like, eh, how do you, you, you have to, for me, I have to take up rituals and practices to be able to shift from, or not even to shift from one to the other, but to say yes. And, oh my God. Oh my God. Which is really hard. I feel resistance, like physical (laughs) resistance, just hearing that. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so gross. (laughs) It's like, really, it's. Where do you think that resistance comes from though? Like. I want answers. I want to know where things are moving and I want control and I want, I want, I want to feel purpose and Mm. purpose to me is tied to movement towards something. I'm very goal oriented in ways. I'm an Enneagram three. (laughs) I don't under, that's like the one of the systems I don't understand at all. You have no idea what that means. It's tied to basically I'm a goal oriented person and I like working towards things. Um, Okay. I just like, I like working. I like checking things off a list. I like working towards things. There's the flip side of that, which like, I like it so much that I also will like hold things because I don't want to move towards them because I want them to exist forever. Mm, like yeah, all these yeah. complicated things yep. exist. But the idea that the world just is and that I simply am and that everything just is and we come up and we go back and like everything just pops up for a little Circle bit. Circle of life. <laughs> yeah, that embracing that is so uncomfortable because it's counter to the way that I, imagine my own purpose. Like it, it, Mm. it's not, it's not what I think of when I think of purpose and, and it's confusing for me on some level, Mm -hmm. what purpose is when the world isn't necessarily moving towards something. It's also not the most Jewish idea. So I am, I am Jewish and like there is, there is a belief and who knows what that looks like, but there is some kind of world to come, but the world to come could just be a peaceful time and the world will continue existing. Like nothing will change necessarily. Like I have it in my mind that things will be different, but that's just my idea. The same way I have an idea of God, which was just me trying to understand things and control things. And it's not God. It's just the idea that I created. Yeah. I I have, I'm curious to ask you questions about this from the Jewish angle. Cause I read this book by Eric Newman, another Jungian, um, who was Jewish and who wrote books about Judaism and Judaism from a, yeah, yes, you must read this. It's really <laughs> dense. It's really dense, but it's like a two-part series called The Roots of Jewish Consciousness or something like that. Yeah. What? And I've learned the most I've ever learned about Hasidic Judaism from reading these texts. Wow. So I'm very, when I go into a Jewish space now, I'm like, Let's talk about Mashiach, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the like Messiah, like yeah. But there, there is this, <laughs> to my understanding, there is this like Kabbalistic belief, which is related to Spinoza's whole uh, idea about good and evil. There's this Kabbalistic belief that like evil is just a lesser form of good. Mm. And our job is not to vanquish evil, but to redeem it. And there's no, like, I don't know how to pronounce this word, so 
there's no like eschatology. There's no like in point in as far as I know in Judaism, the same way it exists in Christianity. So I get that there's like this this teaching in Judaism of the era of the Mashiach and the world to come, but it's not clear. You you see the rabbis also saying like, also like the Mashiach is the beggar in the corner right there. <laughs> so yeah. so like, how do you make sense of of that? Oh my gosh, it's the what I'm coming to now is the truth of existence, which is that we don't have answers and that Mm. Judaism is a religion where there's just a lot of people talking about what the potential answers are and they stick their pole on the ground and they're like, this is the answer. And then five people come along and say, no, that's not the answer. This is the answer. And and there's a craving to have the answers, but there's just theories. There's just Mm -hmm. theories about what, what the world to come is and what the purpose of Jewish law is or what God is. And that's really uncomfortable. I'm getting my PhD in Jewish philosophy and I signed up for it. Like, because I liked the idea of ideas, (laughs) I like thinking about things, but now that I'm really in it, I find it to be probably the hardest thing because I want Mm. somebody to just say, this is what, this is what's happening. And here's what you do. Like, I just want to know what to do. And And I'm learning on a deeper level that nobody knows what to do and that we've adopted, like we've adopted Maimonides' idea of the truth, but even then Mm -hmm. other people haven't adopted Maimonides' idea of the truth. So like, there's just, there's so much choice and, and you kind of get to come to your own truth about things. And that's deeply uncomfortable. Is there any path within Judaism that has resonated with you more than others? Um... That's a good question. Is there any path? Yeah, I was reading Martin Buber yesterday Mm -hmm. and his philosophy, classic. (laughs) He has a philosophy of like human relationships and connection Mm -hmm. to things as a means of relating, as like of engaging in relationship with God. Um, Franz Rosenzweig was also somebody who worked with Buber. They're two German philosophers and they have a philosophy of like the Torah that revelation is continuously happening that when you read the Bible, you read the Torah, you're receiving like a message. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Like yeah. that, that to me is, that really speaks to me a lot. I, I also like, I mean, I'm learning to like this more, but to take from the different people and hold them mm-hmm. together. Judaism is really segregated right now mm-hmm. um, and has been for the last couple hundred years. It's been for longer, but the last couple of hundred years, we've really felt it. And we've created like movements, um, Wait. Unlike we've seen in thousands of years. So yeah. to that point, I have a quote to read you from a friend who texted me about this, mm-hmm. um, which is so, I would love to know what you think about this because I read it and I was like, <gasps> um, let's see if I can find it in a... Is it Lachaim OG? Because he had a video. <laughs> no, no. It was, um, you know Isaiah Rothstein? Yeah. So it was him. Okay. Um. So, oh, okay. <laughs> context i sent him a torah reading um actually for the audience's sake can you explain what a torah reading is or like a parsha just for people who may not be familiar with it yeah so every week of the year um jews read a different kind of uh portion of the torah so we call it the torah portion in order to get through the book within the year. So we, we reread, we literally read the Torah, which are the five books of Moses every year. And that's split up into sections so that we get through it basically. 
Beautiful. So last week's Torah portion was Parshat, again, mispronunciation, Parshat Achare Mot, whatever. Okay. And it was... I'm like going to look that up. Like, what song was that? (laughs) And it was basically the story of Aaron's sons, Aaron's two sons offering incense and dying. Now... So they went into the temple, they offered incense to the eternal, and they die. Now, I mm-hmm. always understood that as, like, they offered, like, wrong incense, right? But this this reading that was sent to me by a rabbi is a completely yeah. different interpretation. And the, the interpretation is, like, no, actually, Aaron's sons were super holy AF. Yeah. And, and, they, and, and the eternal was just, like... They they couldn't they couldn't stay alive. They had to become one with the eternal. Mm. That's how holy they were. Um, oh wow! Yeah, and it like blew my mind because that's such oh. a paradoxical reading of the text. And so Isaiah responded to me by saying, um, "Hard to know what level of holiness we can connect to each person in their own way, and each have their own rules. Our souls are calibrated differently." And this mm. is this is interesting. This is related to what you said about like the segregation. He said it's why denominational Judaism is a pathology in response mm. to Christianity trying to centralize faith. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's he's really he's really brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even the wording for that. Yeah. yeah. Judaism, denominational Judaism is mirroring conflict yeah. in Europe around Christianity. Mm. Um, and it's all, it's all like kind of a, a bargain for acceptance on some level mm. because the world was opening up and there's more opportunity and, but also at the same time, Jews were still barred from doing things. So they yeah. couldn't actually do all that they wanted, but there's all this energy. I mean, like we have a lot of energy. I'm black and Jewish. I have, so much energy in me <laughs> like just like my my enthusiasm and excitement for things and my yeah. like hope but everything is so big <laughs> I think it's like I think my ancestors are just like okay when's it gonna happen <laughs> like when are you gonna be able to do it because yeah. it's just been oppression for a really long time yeah and now I'm like out um yeah. And same with you. Like, there's just a lot of energy and just a lot of ideas and things that change. And, um, and that's what the Jew, like, that's what the Jews were experiencing in Germany, in particular, in Western mm. Europe, where they were like, "We need to do something with all of this." And there's opportunity, and we can, we can be in the world. And, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, but they, it was to my mind, it was very kind of fear-based or it was very like defensive. Like, how do we, how do we get in? How do we, how do we carve out a place for ourselves? Um, It's very reactionary Mm. and we very much, we continue to have that in a world where we have all the opportunity. Yeah. Um, But that's like a shift. That's like how hard it is to shift from a teleological mindset to a non- non-dual non-teleological mindset it's like hard to shift from a trauma-informed response to a holistic response you know it's extremely hard to do that especially over the course of you know generational baggage and parental baggage it takes work for sure 
Yeah, I was thinking about it recently. I was walking in Central Park and I was looking at people and I was like really looking at people. Like I don't I don't let myself be curious a lot, but I yeah. just started letting myself be curious. So if I wanted to stare at somebody, I was just going to be I love that. I want to do that like, by the way. It's hard actually. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> to let that like inner child come out and just be like, I'm staring at you. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> like, and then I'm staring at the next person and the next person I'm just yeah. staring. And when you really look at people, you realize, I realized at least how innately different everybody is. Like mm. innately, like everybody's so different, like body types and facial features and like everything is so different. And there might be two people who look alike, but they're still really different. Yeah. And I, and I was thinking about it and what what hit me is that I think that we're so averse to really looking at people mm. and also acknowledging difference that difference has started to come out in such a way that like, it's going to hit you in the face. Yeah. Like clothes are louder now than ever. People are wearing like more are wearing makeup. Men are wearing nail polish and earrings. Yeah. And that's like standard now. And like these things that are just different are just coming out to the surface because we can't keep them in. We can't mm. keep it in anymore that we're just being confronted with difference to try and start kind of acclimating to it a little bit. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Because because we're totally resistant to seeing difference. Do you think that was always the case or is that like a contemporary thing? I don't know. It's a good good question uh do I think that not yeah I I think it's part of the human condition like the difficulty okay. in seeing like I, the reason I think that I'm going back to the bible actually with Miriam who is Moses's sister she there's a line in the Torah where she sees Moses's wife who was identified as a like a kushit which mm-hmm. could be Ethiopian or a black woman Mm-hmm. And she, she, Miriam calls that out and then got mm-hmm. leprosy. Mm-hmm. And there's different interpretations of it, but it could be a kind of first instance, or not first instance, but an instance of some kind of racism or seeing mm-hmm. somebody, uh, I don't want to say targeted because that's so <laughs> loaded, <antiquated, laughs> but yeah, super loaded. It's like, I shouldn't put that on there, but just yeah. seeing somebody looking at, looking at, a race or a, a color and like yeah. looking down on them for that. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think that is very much a part of our, sure. of our being and our psyche. It's the shadow, right? Like we're yeah. not able to look at things, but now there's talk about numbing. Like I think social yeah. media and seeing people online has made it really hard to know how to connect with people in real life. I struggle a hundred percent. I do, very yes, much a hundred percent. Right. Yeah. Do you experience that? I'm taking a break from social media for the month of May, the entire month wow. of May, except for LinkedIn. Wow. I will go on LinkedIn. It's <laughs> like my one <laughs> plug. It's <laughs> like my one outlet. Catch me on LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, because like, so back to Jungian uh, stuff, Marion and Robert, I feel like we're on the first name basis now. <laughs> they talk about like the masculine and the feminine and not as like genders, but as like, like, uh, energies that are, are, um, uh, like different sides of the same coin. And one of the elements of feminine energy is the capacity to be receptive. And my time on social media significantly diminishes my capacity to be receptive because my brain on social media is wired to look for likes and retweets and comments and, and this kind of very unrooted, undeep feedback 
system that stops me from uh, sitting patiently and being with what is, which is like yeah. the art of receptivity. So I can't take you in, right? I can't take another human being in if I'm constantly being wired to go ping, 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 yeah. ping, right? So yeah, I think that there's a direct relationship between social media, the way they're set up now, and our incapacity to take in each other and to be and to hold space for one another, um, which is yeah. super important because I read this book or most of this book called Nonviolent Communication by Marsha Rosenberg. Mm. Yeah. And he talks about the importance of um, being like the full range of emotions is 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 welcome in a yeah. sense in nonviolent communication. So if I'm angry and someone has been training in nonviolent communication, when I express my anger, they will be able to hold it <laughs> without like, you know, spiraling out or reacting in a, or taking it personally or identifying with it. Like I want that superpower. Like this is a, yeah. I don't have this power yet, but this is something that I aspire to have one day. So yeah, to be able to, thank you, <laughs> to be able to like hold space for it. Again, it's receptivity and social media yeah. just like, zaps me of that capacity 100 percent, totally I love the term holding space I'm learning to hold space right now a lot yeah. and I and I had to learn how to hold space for feelings in myself how to feel yeah full circle the circles are just going back around <laughs> um, but I yeah. had to learn how to feel in order to be able to hold space and and also work through my own trauma and abandonment issues and things to be able to feel comfortable in myself and like my soul can live in my body. Like I can be in my body Yeah. and social media, what, what it does, even when I think I'm not doing it, I'll get caught up in it. Mm. It it forces you to take people as they present themselves, like just Mm. whatever's there and you're not given any opportunity to hold space but it makes you feel like you're holding space and like you're being held. But it's like this artificial hug. It's like a robot with just a torso is hugging you and like half <laughs> arms. And you're like, oh, yeah, this is holding. And then two seconds in, you're like, this is not being held. What am yeah. I doing? Like, yeah. Somebody, people talk about their pain and and you receive it. But there's no personal space because they haven't mm. told me one-on-one. They're telling the world. And, and, I, and I respond to it. And it's like I held them, but I didn't. And we're like looking for people to hold us, but mm. nobody can. Right. It's not a machine that's built for that, but it gives us this idea that they have. So we feel like yeah. we've been satiated when we're all starved. Yeah. And, and when we're starved, we keep going back to it, thinking that it's going to satiate us. And it, it just creates this never ending loop. Yeah. Uh, that's totally like impoverished. And people ask me, like, I've been on a podcast where they're like, what do we, how do we design better platforms? You know, how do we design better social media, you know, entities? And I'm like, I don't know. I think human beings just have to take responsibility for themselves. (laughs) You know, one one of the things, one of the things I'm learning about myself is like, I need ritual of some sort to like Mm. make sense in my life. And like, yeah. No one's going to do that for me. I have to consciously and with intention live my life with rituals. Right. And there's no designing yeah. of a 
social media platform that's going to solve that problem for me. So. Yeah, that that like personal responsibility yeah. is hard. Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> like it's that taking stock and just saying, I'm gonna I'm going to give myself what I need. And I also can, I think it's more I can mm. give myself what I need. Mm. Ooh. I know I had resentment, like, well, my parents didn't give me everything that same, I needed. So same, why am I gonna same. do that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. I didn't want to do it. Because I was just like, they should have done it. I'm not going to do it. That's it. stupid. Yeah. 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 Very um, adolescent. It's adolescent. adolescent. It's adolescent. It's like totally. Peter Pan syndrome. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. like, you're you're probably right. Like, I'm probably right that my parents should have done X, Y, and Z better. But like, I have to grow up. <laughs> uh, yeah, it sucks. It really just <laughs> sucks a lot. Like, that's yeah. all. I don't know. Like, that's what I woke up this morning and I was like, my life is hard. Yeah. That's it. The Holocaust <laughs> happened. Like there are yeah. tragedies in the world and my life is hard. And, and your life hard. is hard. Yeah. And it gets to be a challenge. It's really yeah. hard. Yeah. I think part af- like affirming that is really important. Yeah. You know? And like, yeah, because sometimes I can feel, I, I feel guilty for like believing that certain aspects of my life, not that I'm thinking about it. I do feel guilty believing that certain elements of my life. Uh, are hard or challenging or taxing but like they are (laughs) why can't it just be hard yeah why can't it all just be hard I compare myself also I studied history I like studied a lot of history and, Mm. and I think about people who lived in the past and so when I think about my life I'll I would often go to people in the past who had hard lives and think well doesn't matter. John Adams was away from Abigail Adams for 12 years. And life was hard back then. Like life was really hard. Yeah. And I imagine somebody from the 18th century being proposed a world like ours. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I would think, I, I really think that they would say that sounds terrible. Yeah. Like that sounds really difficult. Yeah. Like I just have to go outside and I work the land or I, <laughs> Yeah, I had to go and, and, I, and I can't talk to my wife every day, whatever like the things were because I'm on a boat to get to another country for six months. Yeah. And that's 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 hard. But also like, wow, to be able to have access to everything that you want. Yeah, and that's then, like problematic, actually, in many ways. <laughs> deeply. Yeah, yeah, deeply problematic. And, and the glorification of the past and the idea, not even glorification, the idea that the past was harder than the present. Mm-hmm. For sure, there was less freedom and there mm-hmm. were things that were difficult. My ancestors were enslaved. Like, yeah. that is really hard. And yet, it's also really hard to be free. It's, yeah. Booker D. Washington writes about that. Like, it's... Yeah. Freedom is something you have to be trained in. <laughs> like, the, these are... You have to... Character development, character building doesn't just happen. And just because you have access to, thing and, to things and comfort, it doesn't mean that you're going to be better off. Yeah, uh, Marcus Aurelius has this quote where he says, it is possible to be happy even in a palace. Mm. (laughs) It's possible to be happy? I love that. Wow. Yeah, and there's also also this idea like Buddhism, like the way the Buddha became the Buddha was like he was this prince who was born into luxury and everything. And like he started to realize that there were these things like sickness and old age and death and then that led to him awakening to all these truths about the nature of reality and it's like in our 
in our society, which is highly influenced by like the Protestant work ethic and Calvinism and, and bleeding into consumerism, right? There's this false uh, sense that happiness is just the acquisition of things and as many things as possible and immediate access, immediate access, right? I can call it Uber. It's here in like five minutes. And if it's here in, and if it's taking five minutes, by the way, I consider that to be long, That's right? Long. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I would cancel like, that Uber. <laughs> torturous long, right? Like I can order yeah. groceries to my house. <laughs> Someone else will go grocery shopping for me and pick them yeah. Right. And it's the immediacy. You know, I was, um, I had a subscription, a food subscription for a while to a company that was fine. But like, I realized that like, Chloe, you need to be cooking. Like you need to go mm. into the kitchen Me too. slow down and cook, you know, and have a relationship, be tethered to the food and say blessings over this chicken whose life was given to provide you sustenance. Like there, ha- there needs to be an interdependent relationship and, yeah. and, and the, and the immediacy of everything, the, um, the immediate materialistic acquisition of everything takes us away from that capacity to be in relationship with everything, ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. I have two thoughts that come from that, which is one, like democracy turned people into kings and queens, kind of. Mm. I mean, it turned celebrities into kings and queens, really, but it turned, it turned, yeah. um, it turned everybody into the princes kind of royalty on some level and oh that's interesting yeah I could see that I could see that it seems like a cool kind of like we're being this is why I need teleology like (laughs) we have to be learning lessons and moving towards something because we're learning new lessons like we're learning the lessons of abundance without physical abundance like yeah we're learning the abundance of the universe and of God and on a totally different level and that's just like the common man. Yeah. <laughs> like theoretically, most people obviously are not attuned to these things, but yeah. but we're we are learning really deep lessons through the pandemic and through yeah. things, and more people are going to therapy. And like we're really working through a lot. So there's that side. But and not but and also privilege is something that's really we're being pushed to feel guilty about things, I think. That's interesting. Like, yeah. Can you say you more about talk- that? Yeah, I think it's coming out and I think it's being expressed in race because that's the mm. closest thing that people can latch on to. Yeah. I have um, a lot of I have a lot of opinions. <laughs> you do have a lot of you opinions. Just my, my foot started shaking just now. I was like, oh, I have a lot of opinions on this one. Yeah. Yeah. But well, I want to hear like, your thoughts on it. <laughs> I don't have like my thoughts are 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 just bubbling to the surface, but you you talked about getting groceries delivered and things and, and I have that <laughs> yes. too. And there's something guilty about that. Like I feel guilty. You feel about guilty that. about like, it. Should yeah. I, yeah. Why should I have my groceries delivered or wow, my life is so good. This is, I, I like, I have too much or things are too easy. And, yeah. and the language of privilege and guilt has become really tied together like that's a that's a thing okay. i have many now. things to yeah, say go. about this okay so two, a few I'm things a few things um so i don't feel guilty about the grocery thing because i actually don't do it that often i go grocery shopping once a week and i go to my do it every day i go <laughs> that would be wasteful probably i don't know but like <laughs> i go to my i go to my grocery store every week like physically but 
um, a few months ago or a month ago, I had like a terrible cold and I was like in bed for a week and I had to have someone physically bring me like chicken noodle soup and all these things. And that was the first time I started buying packs of bottled water because I don't drink enough water or I didn't, I wasn't drinking enough water, which is partly why I got sick. And so I discovered that I, I can order packs of bottled water to my apartment. And I've just kept doing that because also because I couldn't go to the store and like carry that because it's so big. So I'm also guilty about that. However, what I will say is that the whole privilege power um, I had this aha moment listening to Marion and Robert. The whole privilege mm. power dynamic is still stuck in what they would describe as the patriarchal framework. Because, mm. because what I've noticed with a lot of the conversations on race, but not just race, um, is that like the goal, the out the the aspiration is still like the accumulation of material wealth. <laughs> Right. Mm, so we yeah. might we might call one group of people privileged, but at the same time, we have the very same value system. And the goal is to acquire that material wealth. And the goal really is to become privileged. Right. And so, yeah. Why is that patriarchal? So I don't even necessarily have a negative connotation with the term patriarchal. I think certainly in the Jungian system, patriarchy is a part of a timeline like on its way to a higher state of consciousness basically but it's like mm. a it's like a necessary phase that humans have to go through in order to reach the next phase which i, I like that it resonates with me but so just to clarify it's patriarchal yeah. because it's associated with the masculine like why why no. is it necessarily patriarchal? it's patriarchal because it's wounded masculine devoid of the feminine and what that literally means is that the highest value system is power and not power in the Spinozian sense, but in the postmodern sense, right? Got it. Power yeah. meaning needing to yeah. control and predict. This is related to mystery, right? <laughs> needing to yeah. control and predict everything outcomes, which, which prevents us from being in relationship with people, right? Cause mm. one of the things I've learned about myself, like when I'm interested in a guy, there's like, Sometimes I'll I'll feel it. I'll feel this emotion of possessiveness within me, yeah, right? Yeah. And this like need to control and predict the outcome. And that's the same sort of like we look out in the world and we say all these things need to change. Like all these impulses need to change. All these drives for power need to change. But like that is within me. Yeah. You know? And so yeah. my, the only thing really that I have some influence over is like becoming aware of that, becoming attuned to that and changing that within myself. Yeah. I don't know where I was going with this. I had a point to make. Race and privilege. And- oh yeah. Just that the conversation about that the conversation about privilege is still caught in a dynamic or in a, in a um, paradigm in a value yeah. system, the top of which is power. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's like a never ending cycle that you can't like escape if you if you stay in it, if you stay in that mm. dynamic. Yeah, right. Unless you focus. This is why like I study Booker T. Washington and you read Booker T. Washington. It's like this yeah. idea of like character building and the focus on what yeah. you gain internally is so disruptive. 
And why also it's so maligned right now. Like Booker T. Washington mm. was wiped from history, basically. Like, yeah, uh, in, a, in a larger sense, he's not somebody who's studied in schools really today. He's not on black curricula, like African-American um, coursework that I, I didn't know that he wasn't tried to find Booker T. Washington. Yeah, <laughs> not really. No, it's yeah. like that's not there's for sure criticism there, but the focus on like the self and the gains of the self. Yeah. Um, that's like not, that's not what we're focused on today. Do you think it's so funny to me because I could see how Booker T Washington was so necessary for the self, the black South's capacity to leverage its financial power against Jim Crow. And what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is like, ironically and paradoxically, Jim Crow forced Black Americans in the South to come together and pull all their resources together and like build their own banks and their own taxi systems and their own churches and which actually generated wealth within the community. And that's like straight Mm -hmm. up taken out of Booker T. Washington's whole framework. Um, And and you couldn't do Dubois, right, without (laughs) without doing Booker T. Washington because you needed the you needed the character, you needed the you needed the community, you needed the financial leverage to boycott, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott and all the other buses. So the character is what led to the wealth, which is what gave the leverage to push political change forward. And we've totally lost Mm. sight of the interrelatedness of all of those different pieces. I love that. I feel like I learned so much talking to you, like just new language. Likewise. Looking at things. I love, yeah, we don't think about, also Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Dubois were like friends. Yeah. They knew each other and they, they were friends for a while. And then there Mm -hmm. was, and then W.E.B. Dubois didn't agree with Booker T. Washington's approach to race relations really. Yeah. Kind of upbuilding. Yeah. But they still were, in contact they didn't hate each other <laughs> they weren't like, canceling that's not each the other. story yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> they like literally they were not canceling each other they believed yeah. in the right to exist <laughs> yeah and and to create and they they had a much deeper at least stronger relationship than people at least lengthier relationship than people want to make it out to be yeah i don't know how they long were, was there how long did, did that last they were in contact uh, uh, like up until booker t washington's final years of life Mm. I mean, they were in the same circles. They didn't hate each other. They didn't hate yeah, yeah, each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is the impression that people have that they hated each other? They're pit against each other. They're okay. seen as two different schools and yeah. thus opposing forces, which yeah. can never exist together. Right. It's that dualistic, um, it's that dualistic, like, uh, it's like not an Eastern framework, right? Because an Eastern framework is like yin-yang. There's a little bit of white and black. There's a little bit of black and yeah. white these are two sides of the same coin, right? But our Western framework is very like split. Like it's very schizophrenic in many ways, you know? Yeah. It's only this or that. It's like, yeah. it's totally, for lack of a better term, it's totally black and white. Like it's yeah. not even, we don't, integration is really uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> and the paradox of life is uncomfortable. And I've really contemplated that word integration mm-hmm. and thought about it I've had the opportunity to think about it more deeply, um, partially because I was reading Derek Bell, who is an architect of critical race theory. And there's all this like, uh, you know, when it comes to critical race theory, but I read one of his books, Silent Covenants. 
And Derek Bell actually went down to the South. He was a lawyer that represented, I think he was working for the NAACP actually, or with them, to represent Black Southerners who were fighting for the passage of Brown versus the Board of Education, which ended segregation. But he has all of these like aha moments about like when it passed, how it some of the byproducts actually ended up harming uh, Black Americans. So for example, mm. if you had a small school in the center of a, of a small Black town, it was the center of the town. Like the community organized around it, the events that happened, happened around it, ritualistically, seasonally, et cetera. Once you had Brown versus the Board of Education, you had forced integration. Mm. So now that destroys the school and students are bused into a different area. The white kids, their parents might take them out. So then you have white flight and all of these. Yeah. So what ends up happening is you, one of the byproducts of forced integration is the disintegration of a community. Interesting. Because it's not, it's not rooted in like, you know, materially. And so, and so thinking about that and thinking about what real integration requires, especially from a Jungian perspective, right? Because Jung is Mm. all about integration, right? Integration of getting in right relationship with all the parts of yourself that you don't like. Right. Integration with those parts that you've cast out onto others that you need to recall for yourself. Right. Yeah. That individual work. um, Ironically, I think. Is partially what Booker T. Washington was teaching, because that's inherent in character building. Right. And that is the foundation. That is what makes a, a community. Uh, you know, a strong community possible in the first place. Because if the members of the community are not themselves integrated, then how are you going yeah. to achieve integration between different communities? So I've been thinking a lot about that word lately. It's also, I think what he also did was encourage self-acceptance and aspiration together. Yeah. And in order to in order to move, to move forward, you have to accept where you've been and where you are yeah. instead of focusing so much on where you will be. Yeah, where you will be piece is really important, but the self acceptance part is also hugely important. And I think what he had was a really realistic vision. I mean, W. E. B. Du Bois came from a different world, really. Yeah, that's true. Like, like a totally different. He's from. He's a northerner. He went to Harvard. Yeah, still black in the world, which yeah. in and of itself was was a feat. But um, in a yeah. certain sense, but he he wasn't. He didn't have that kind of grounding in the in the world of black southerners and yeah. Booker T. Washington took a really realistic approach to these are the facts on the ground. This is what is. And we're going to work with that. We're not going to send people to the North where they're like, they haven't accepted themselves. And now they're in a world where they're seeing people who are, yeah, exactly. They're seeing people who are different than them. They're seeing, they're aspiring towards wealth and towards status. And it's, it's leaving them empty and also future generations empty because they don't have skills. They can't do anything. Yeah. Um, I was talking about this with someone yesterday. I was talking about Aaron Douglas, the famous painter who, mm -hmm. who portrayed all of these images of, you know, the great migration to the North, these paintings of like African-Americans moving to the North and this sort of utopic vision uh, and painting it, it's so ironic, painting industrialization as like mm. 
the key to liberation. Mm. And, you know, in retrospect, it's like, wow, we were wrong um, in many ways. <laughs> you know, in some ways we were right, but in other ways we were wrong. But something that's interesting is that, like, you know, Christopher Lash in his book, The True and Only Heaven, has this section on Dr. King. And he talks about the different people who influenced Dr. King, Reinhold Niebuhr being one of those Protestant theologians who basically also, like, didn't realize this, but, like, totally predicted like he said that black people should boycott. Like he, he was like, mm. black, he, and he was writing this in like 1912. Right. Wow. So Dr. King like saw that and then like went with it. But, mm. but like Reinhold Niebuhr talks about a spiritual um, discipline against the politics of resentment mm. and how like that needs to be the center of, and, and Christopher Lash argues that when Dr. King got to the North, he started to deviate from that. And what he should have done when he got to the North, because when he got to the North, he saw people who lacked that self-esteem, who lacked that sense of self-worth. Despite the persecution that had occurred in the Jim Crow South, there was still that character building from Booker T. Washington, right, that resulted in that sense of self-worth and that sense of pride, Mm. which was totally lacking in the North. And so Lash argues that King, instead of emphasizing integration should have actually emphasized community building first in the North. Mm, And because he didn't, because he didn't, he was basically like, you know, he and the, um, what is it? Southern national Christian something. Uh, I forgot the name of the organization, but like (laughs) they were like laughed out of town, like Stokely Carmichael called them uncle Tom's like, because there wasn't that foundation that we're talking about. Hmm, That's really profound. I have a question for you about the difference between forced integration versus, I don't know what exactly is on the other side, natural integration. Like on some level, do you think that there's a place for, I think about this with anything that's a human endeavor. The land of Israel was forced on some level. Like that was fighting for it. Yeah. yeah, Um, yeah. Brown versus the board of education. That's forcing change. Yeah. It's And taking things into human (laughs) hands isn't going to, will not go well. <laughs> like, there will yeah. be problems with it. There will be people who resent it. There will be people who downright hate it. Yeah. Um, but does that mean that that's not the right approach? Or I, I don't know the answer to this question. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> I want you to have the answers. Of it's, a va- it's a very valid question. I was talking to my roommate about this. Um, like guilt. What conversations you have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're talking about like guilt, a guilt-oriented Versus like, I'm going to like, I'm going to make you feel guilty about what you did versus a nonviolent communication, which is like, Mm. like non-judgment, like how the, and I think it's a balance, you know, on some level, I haven't figured it out. I may never figure it out. I, I just know that like, everything has a byproduct. Right. So, and that's part of the mystery of being, right. You'll never be able to pinpoint control every element of your or every outcome of your action but like I'm just fascinated by some of the byproducts that have come out of come out of our movements in America that I just wasn't aware of and that makes sense when I look at them through a Jungian lens and like oh Mm. you know um but it's also like how do you encourage 250 million people to do yeah. the work of individual integration. <laughs> yeah, you can't. You, you cannot. 
don't say that, Kylie. I have such high hopes for this project. I mean, I think, I, how do you do it? It's interesting. The universe sends a pandemic that puts people in <laughs> their homes that makes true. them depressed. It sends them the therapy that yeah. then yeah, yeah, <laughs> forces yeah, yeah. it. Like, that's, that's true. Kind of feels like those things do happen naturally. So maybe there's some balance between human action and there for sure is and divine yeah. divine plans, I guess. And letting yeah. both things unfold at once. And it'll be awkward because we're humans and we don't know exactly what we're supposed to do, but we act because we act. Yeah. The mystery of being. Touch. That's your next podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, maybe this will be the title of this podcast. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. The mystery of being. No, I mean our episode. Our episode. Oh, our podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The heart speaks. The mystery of being. Exactly. Exactly. I like it a lot. I like it a lot. You've given me a lot to think about, Kylie. Thank you. <sighs> You've given me so much to think about as well as spiritual nourishment, intellectual nourishment, and also deep curiosity about how you read so much. <laughs> I get off social media. That's how I read. <laughs> the amount you of, you know, I have this notification on my phone that shows me how much time I've spent on my phone. Yeah. And yeah, same. Every, the weeks that I'm on social media, it's like such a, a contrast. <laughs> I'd be so curious what your numbers are, but I won't force you to admit that. (laughs) I I don't, I mean, it's bad when it's, when it's the weeks that I'm on. So it's like four, like four hours, four to six hours or something like that. Okay, cool. Great. I feel more. As long as it's somewhere between four and five, I feel good. I just want to know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have anything to measure myself against. I'm like, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I don't. Yeah. I mean, but you know what I need to figure out how to do? Like when I choose to go back on social media. And right now I'm I'm like, I'm going to go on one Saturday evening a month. Like that's what nice. I'm thinking about. I don't know if I will hold to that, but that's okay. when I go, when I finish the month of May, that's what I'm thinking I'll, I'll do because I never know how to like, when I'm on it, I'm like oh, on it, you know? Yeah. And I don't like that. That's not good for me. Give it space. It's like giving yeah. it a container to live in. Yeah. I mean, that's, that sounds right. Saturday night. <laughs> Saturday night, Saturday night, social night. <laughs> and then even then I can't stay on. Yeah. Cause I'll be going out dancing or something. So yeah. <laughs> that's good. It's a good balance. Um, well, this was awesome. <clears throat> Thank you Thank for you. coming on the pod. Um, Thank you for having me. It's going to wow. be really cool. I really love this conversation. I loved how free going it was. Um, I'm excited. Yeah. It's be just on, fun be on to be able to talk. Yeah. I will. Sure.